I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, I lose my shirt at the St. Regis, give elocution lessons to Bono, and meet three legendary record producers, only one of whom is a murderer. In 1989, John Bon Jovi wondered why everybody in the know, from critics to the band's most famous fan, my cousin Noni, was in love with the replacements when he had never heard of them. Three years later, the replacements are toast, and everybody, including John Bon Jovi, has heard of Noni's new favorite band. For you too has found a place inside my cousin's heart, and so is the lead singer, in some mysterious way. I'm not a rabid fan, but the prospect of seeing you two play at Yankee Stadium is pretty enticing. They're indisputably the biggest band in the world. The current Octung Baby Zoo TV era is their most interesting phase yet, a satisfying pivot from the earnest, chiming anthems of old to something altogether crunchier and more experimental. And yeah, I could think of worse ways to spend the last Saturday in August, when all the shrinks are in the Hamptons and anyone who's anyone has somewhere better to be than at a storied sports arena in the company of rock stars. Music's been a uniting force for the two of us since a snowy weekend at my parents' house when I played 10-year-old Noni cassettes of my favorite new wave and indie rock tunes. In the years that followed, I mailed her tapes crammed with my latest discoveries and obsessions. The Paisley Underground bands, like Game Theory. New Zealand bands, like The Chills. And perennial favorites, like XTC. Three years ago, I took a teenage Noni and her closest friend, actually named, no shit, Heather, to see South African supergroup Malathini and the Mahotela Queens in Central Park. Noni's sixth movie had just come out, Great Balls of Fire, admittedly a bomb. Expulsion from England is a repudiation of rock and roll. They canceled Jerry Lee's tour because of our marriage, not because of his music. But even while the girl had already done two bona fide classics of a sort in Beetlejuice and Heather's, and even while she's been celebrity tabloid fodder since the romance with Johnny Depp, which is technically still on, we made no advanced preparations for hanging out in an unsupervised New York City crowd. Noni wore an oversized white t-shirt, sleeves rolled up, and a red baseball cap showing a pair of dice. A low-key look, to be sure, but we weren't concerned with anyone recognizing her, and no one did. Fast forward to 1992. This time she's taking me to a show. Partially, at least a smidge, just to have someone with her, a strong arm to hold onto in the event of a throng. She's small, and I do feel protective of her. 
It's early afternoon and balmy when we meet at her suite at the St. Regis, a venerable five-star hotel on Fifth Avenue. I'm getting used to high-priced digs now. Not long ago, I met Noni and other members of the clan at an apartment on Central Park South belonging to Luciano Pavarotti. He said she could crash there for a few weeks while she was in town doing publicity. Peeing in Pavarotti's potty. Now that's some operatic shit. St. Regis? Big whoop. Noni's trying on looks. Currently, leather pants and a black t-shirt. Are these two slutty or wannabe groupie, she asks. I tell her she looks great. And of course she does. The cover girl for Rolling Stone's hot issue is bound to look great. Whether slutty, wannabe groupie, or actual groupie. As for me, it takes a little more work. I've brought along a prized item for the occasion, but when I slip away and return wearing it, she scrutinizes my shirt with a quizzical expression. I don't think so, Skies, she says finally. You don't want to upstage anyone. I'm a little stung. More than a little. This is, after all, the cool vintage tab collar shirt that my brother gave me, a royal blue number. Do I really accord her veto power over my shirt? I guess it's part of the bargain. Maybe she just doesn't want me to look like a dope when I meet Bono. The two of them have become pals, mutual admirers, backstage hangout buds. He's a married rock star, and she's still technically engaged to the Depper, but clearly some kind of mutual infatuation is afoot. As some sort of testament to Noni's place in Bono's heart, our ride out to the stadium is none other than the band's manager, which is the 90s version of the Beatles sending Brian Epstein to come fetch us in his town car. Like Epstein, Paul McGuinness has ushered his four lads from humble beginnings to worldwide dominance through tenacity, business acumen, and unwavering belief. Impeccably bearded, wearing a suave summer suit open at the collar, Paul's charming without trying, with an air of calm like subtle perfume. The afternoon is gorgeous. Perfect for baseball, in fact. As the stadium comes into view, Paul shares a lovely historical anecdote about the house that Ruth built. Wow, I think. The guy even knows about baseball. For the life of me, I can't remember it. We drive up to the venue. I mean, right up to it. A chain-link fence parts for us, and our vehicle creeps a little closer. We step out into bright sunlight at the player's entrance and follow Paul through darkened passages into the bowels of the stadium. Gradually, a low throb becomes detectable, then some chiming arpeggios, and we just follow the sound until we emerge into blinding daylight. I stand blinking out sunspots in the Yankees' dugout, my head spinning with thoughts of the legendary baseball men who have stood right here and cussed and spat tobacco juice. The first glimpse of ball field green always stirs me, but this is another thing entirely. The world's biggest band is playing full throttle, and we are the sole audience. The stage is in left field, and we make our way toward it diagonally. I'm actually surprised U2 sounds so much like a U2 record. As polished as they are in studio recordings, the sound they make is truly theirs, not a contrivance or a feat of engineering. A woman approaches us with a camera, and because it's loud and I don't realize she's taking our pictures for an all-access laminated pass, I put my arm around Noni's shoulder, thinking we were being snapped together for posterity. We reach the rows of seats in front of the stage, and I sit and marvel at my good luck. Noni, seated a few rows ahead of me, waves to the guys, and they all wave back, clearly delighted. She looks back at me over her shoulder and smiles, and I take her picture. 
I use up almost half my roll of film documenting the band playing in the empty stadium. How else will anyone else believe it? When the music stops, I follow her to the stage. A strong arm reaches down and helps her up. I climb on without assistance. Rising from a crouch, I'm close to the edge. Who greets us with a smile? Edge gives us a short tour of some of his favorite pedals and gadgets. I take a picture of him and Noni, and then he leads the way to some sort of deluxe VIP backstage quarters where the rest of the band is cooling its expensive heels. The lead singer spots Noni. He comes over, and they hold a warm and meaningful embrace, like a sort of homecoming. She introduces me as Skysby. It's a mutual nickname, I say. Most people call me David. The name came about years ago at Iso Restaurant in New York City. I'd been showing her pictures from a trip to Europe, and I said, so these are these guys we met. Huh? Skysby and Matt? No, these guys we met. Skysby and Matt? What kind of a name is Skysby? Immediately, we both became Skysby. We rarely call each other anything else. Bono takes my hand and leans in, leading with the shoulder. He's not tall, but he projects largeness, as if his atoms are packed extra tight and straining to get out. You actually know my brother, John Klein, I say, feeling slightly empowered by this. Besides my connection to Noni, U2's great friend and fan, I'm also the brother of John, who directed the Fly video for them. Released as the first single from Octung Baby, The Fly did not make much of an impact in the US as a single or a video. Mysterious Ways and its stunning video was the one that established Octung stateside. Still, as the first single, The Fly announced a radical revamping of the band's sound, and The Fly persona is a crucial part of Bono's act for the Zoo TV tour. Bro having directed the video, or co-directed it anyway, feels like a significant connection. John Klein, says Bono, nodding with emphatic recognition. Very talented guy, John Klein, truly. The only person I've ever seen who could actually interrupt himself. I wince a little at the thought of Johnny being remembered for this dubious talent, but I know exactly what he means. Johnny's mind works so fast, it sometimes overflows, and Bono is a pretty garrulous talker himself. He's curious about all kinds of things, and peppers me with questions about the New York Yankees, the Yankees-Mets rivalry, the neighborhood surrounding the stadium, and the sound of the local Bronx accent. Oh, do a Bronx accent, Skysby, Noni says, prompting me. Regional accents are extremely nuanced. I don't know how the Bronx differs from the basic New York accent, but obviously Bono doesn't either. I opt for the seduction scene from Rocky. Balboa was supposed to be from Philly, but Sly Stallone employed a big, dumb New York accent, reflective of his youth in Manhattan's Hell's Kitchen neighborhood. Now that's 15 miles from the Bronx, but hey, it's close enough for rock and roll. I place my hands on Bono's robust shoulders. Adrian, I'm gonna kiss you. You don't have to kiss me back, but I'm gonna kiss you. He places his hands on my shoulders and says it back to me. Dramatically. Irishly. Badly. Might need a little work. Ah, Dave, he says with a weary smile. And with that, he places the flat of his hand, which is dry and slightly calloused, against my forehead and gives a playful shove. Backstage is a vast warren commissary, dressing rooms, makeshift equipment storage spaces. Morley Steinberg, the dancer in the Mysterious Ways video, glides into view, and she and Noni embrace. 
She'll do her tantalizing swirling thing, familiar to anyone with MTV, when the song is performed later. Much later, years I mean, she and The Edge will marry. A large video crew gathers to work out logistics, and the leader is someone I recognize. Mark Neal, a lovely, charismatic Englishman whom I met two years ago at my brother's wedding. It was a two-day affair, the second day of which took place at a stately home known as Rotham Park in Barnet, outside of London. The setting was regal, from the John Singer Sargent paintings on the walls to the presence of Kylie Minogue and Michael Hutchins among the uniformly posh-looking invitees. As my parents and sister and I made our entrance, a beefeater proclaimed our arrival in a voice like a silver cornet muffled in silk. Richard and Joan Klein, David and Elizabeth Klein of Tenafly. And now here's Mark Neal, who got his foot in the door editing segments on Johnny's MTV series, leading a film crew on U2's plush pound note. Bro's former co-director, another Mark, Pellington, is here too in spirit anyway, via the fast-moving, buzz-style video collages that feature in U2's current stage show. And it occurs to me that besides The Fly, Johnny hasn't done much else of late. Taking stock of the graduating class of buzz, coupled with Bono's genial goof at Johnny's expense, dampens my all-access giddiness for a long moment. After a small meal that I'm too hopped up to eat, Noni and I wander around taking in the scene. We stop in a brightly lit kitchenette for a bottle of water, where legendary producer Tony Visconti and his wife of three years, May Pang, are finishing dinner. May Pang is famous as John Lennon's girlfriend during his notoriously debauched Lost Weekend period in the early 1970s. Tony the studio mastermind behind Ziggy Stardust and T-Rex's Electric Warrior and May are extremely tickled to meet Noni, whose effect is instantaneous. It's not so much a matter of her lighting up a room, more that others light up in her presence. Noni and May go for a walk, and it's just me and Tony. Thumps from the opening act, disposable heroes of hypocrisy, are audible, yet he appears content to sit at a kitchen table and chat with me. He says he met the guys in U2 while doing some remixes for them during the Unforgettable Fire LP, but that was the extent of their connection. I share that Noni and Bono have gotten to be good friends, and I'm her lucky escort for the evening. He asks what I do, and I give him the upbeat version of my job in publishing, along with the fact that I'm a writer. During a pause, I break in to tell him how much I revere his production work for Bowie and T-Rex, and it occurs to me that I can just ask him whatever I want. Love's can I just, how did you get that crazy metallic voice on the chorus of Scary Monsters? That's called a gate, David. Do you know what a gate is? In a soft voice combining the Brooklyn of his youth and decades spent in music studios with Englishers, Tony explains that a gate is a device that limits the length of a signal, and when you take a gated signal and bounce it back through another gate on a different machine, and then send the signal back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, something indescribable happens. He talks about other instances where he's gotten a particular effect by means of the gate technique. Most notably on Bowie's Unforgettable Heroes vocal. And our conversation snakes in all sorts of fascinating directions. At some point, kind of out of nowhere, he hits me with, so why haven't you written a book yet? 
stops me cold. Here's a guy who, by 30, had produced Ziggy Stardust, talking to a 30-year-old who hasn't produced much of anything. I have no answer for Tony. Short stories are my thing. Short stories are of a manageable length. Hell, one weird night in the East Village and you have a short story. But a whole book? A whole book that isn't a bunch of short stories? What would it even be about? Still, I, I guess being taken for someone who should have written a book by now, by someone at his level, is kind of good. Noni and May return to fetch Tony and me. The headliners are about to go on. At May's suggestion, we exchange contact info. Someone from U2 personnel appears and guides us to the VIP riser, an island of exclusivity reserved for the very special and their fortunate guests. Scoping for the first time the tens of thousands of people who've paid good money for this event, I can't resist a smirk. Lenny Kravitz is hard to miss. Noni gives him a quick hello and we move on. Hey, look, it's John McEnroe and Tatum O'Neill. You cannot be serious! I'm on my tuna does! This kind of stargazing is diverting, not nervous making. At least not until I spot Peter Gabriel. Peter's long been an object of fascination for me, going back to high school when he split from Genesis and started making really curious, over-the-top but deep and intriguing, immaculately produced solo albums, each with an eye-assaulting cover by Hypnosis. In a 1982 journal, my list of top 10 songs that never failed to knock me out includes On the Air slash DIY, the conjoined tracks that open PG2. Noni is also a huge Peter Gabriel fan. I've never seen her this starstruck before. We have to talk to him, I say. I know, but I don't know what to say. You have to do it. Me? Come on, you're one of them. I just know you'll come up with something adorable. I can't. You start it. Come on, you can do it, Skysby. I take her hand and we approach Peter who is well over six feet tall and has the bearing of a statue and, it should be said, still has his hair. Noni hangs back a bit as I stammer an introduction. I've been a fan of yours for the longest time, I say, recalling the night I tried to kiss Missy Birch while Peter Gabriel 1 was playing and my kiss landed squarely on the air. Since that first solo record, with the mirrored contact lenses, I add, referring to the unsettling eye accoutrements he wears in the inner sleeve photograph, he gives no nod of acknowledgement, no obligatory thanks. Instead, Peter shifts his gaze toward Yankee Stadium's famously short right field porch for a theatrical moment, as if reimagining PG-1. The album cover shoot in the rain, sessions with the London Symphony Orchestra, and the time producer Bob Ezrin gaffer taped him to a pole in order to get a more heartfelt vocal take. That was, Gabes finally says, a long, long time ago. The initial industrialized lurch of Zoo Station sounds like thunder, and cheers erupt all around us. And when the band falls into its groove, I feel a rush of excitement at the enveloping fullness of the audio, coupled with the same feeling you get at any performance by someone you know personally. Only, unlike attending a Mercy gig on Bleecker Street with a few office colleagues, the guy I was just shooting the shit with is now on stage in front of 30,000 people, 
Still, as far as I'm concerned, it's just me and Skysby among thousands of distant, though receptive souls. I'm feeling so agreeable, I even partake in the corny call and response segment of Angel of Harlem, no less, a song I've never warmed to until this very second. The performance is punctuated by a rush of video art flashing across the giant display screens behind the stage, a distorted blur of sensory overload meant to mirror life in the digital age. The set climaxes with Where the Streets Have No Name and Pride in the Name of Love, and the band leaves for the first, but by no means last time. When they return, Bono is Mirrorball Man, a sleazy televangelist alter ego in a mirror-studded suit and 20-gallon hat. They kick into Desire, a Bo Diddley steal, and Bono preens into a full-length mirror under caustic Vegas lighting. At the operative moment, he steps to the mic, mirror still in hand, and intones to his reflection, I'm gonna kiss ya! You may not kiss me back, but I'm gonna kiss ya! On the VIP riser, our high-five reverberates across the zeitgeist, and the crowd goes wild. Afterward, we wait backstage along with a dozen others for our moment of communion. Lisa Robinson, the music journalist and former editor of my beloved Cream magazine, is here with Phil Spector. She was once a very big name in rock journalism and a close friend of the Zeppelin. Spector, formerly the most famous record producer on earth, is known these days primarily as a paranoid, gun-toting grotesque. Phil is a jangly presence in the not-huge green room. Eventually, he makes his way over to Noni and me. His aviator shades are tinted, and the hairpiece he selected for tonight suggests a mid-80s country star, middle-parted with a fringe of bangs and feathered mullet sides. He doesn't wait for an acknowledgement from Noni, just walks right up, speaking rapid-fire like a crazed DJ. Winona Ryder, Winona Ryder, hello, hello, Winona Ryder. You know what? I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, your name, it's got a thing. This thing really reminds me of that classic song originally recorded by Ma Rainey in 1924 he says, cracking a grin. Suddenly, he has one palm upturned and the other is clapping out a beat in fierce downward strokes. See? See, see, Ryder. Won't you see what you've done? See, keep Ryder. He's in the studio now, giving instructions to the wrecking crew in his mind. Noni might even be on the verge of responding when Phil's muzzle suddenly points toward Tatum O'Neill, whose name has a thing that really reminds him of that classic song, Beale Street Blues, by the great W.C. Handy. Bono emerges just in time, dressed casually for Bono. Shades unmirrored, crucifix earring, sans sparkly gemstones. He works the room, stopping to greet Spectre first, and then spending a little time with everyone else, like a good host. In Lisa Robinson's subsequent account of the evening, she describes Noni as gazing adoringly at Bono, and that description feels true enough. We have a brief moment with him, and then Skysby signals that we're going. I know not where, but I will follow. A Team U2 guy leads us through a passage or two, and then we're outside, where a long black limo sits idling. The door is opened, and I climb in and take the rearward passenger side seat. Noni and Bono come around the other side and take seats across from me by about eight feet. The chief tech guy takes the seat to my left, and we take off, 
bound for the Riga Royal on West 54th Street. In the interior's dim light, the world outside the window is glittering and vague. We sprawl in our soft seats, drinking plush luxury bubbles. The streets have no name. You sounded so great, Noni says, sounding fan-like. Bono emits a noise like, eh, you don't think so? There were some good points, he says. It's just, you know, sometimes you're up there and there's a moment where you're just positive that 10,000 people have all gone off and taken a piss at the same time. So here it is, what it really feels like to be the one in the spotlight. It's a far cry from how it felt to Robert Plant, who memorably told Lisa Robinson of times on stage when he wanted to fuck the whole front row. Does anybody remember laughter? The future sure ain't what it used to be. Well, you totally nailed that bit from Rocky, I say. Ah, Dave. You're such a wag. This is a good thing, being a wag. I think. Certainly better than being a self-interrupter. What exactly is a wag, I say? It's not a word you hear all that often. I mean, as a noun. He says a wag is someone who sees humor in things that not everyone would find funny. In the hotel suite, we sprawl on even softer leather and listen to Van Morrison through sweet speakers. None of that chintzy hotel equipment up here. Bono says certain songs, like Tupelo Honey, are ancient things, and that Van was sort of a conduit for it, the discoverer of something that existed already. I have no trouble with this kind of mysticism. You can take what is music if not my religion, anyway? Edge and Daniel Lanois stopped by. Ten years ago, Daniel was producing acts like Nash the Slash, a Canadian New Wave violinist, and his sister's band, Martha and the Muffins. Now he's about the hottest producer on the planet, and he's doing his own stuff, too. He picks up an acoustic and plays us a few songs from a solo LP he's been working on. Maybe he finds his title tonight. The record comes out the following year under the name Sometimes there's a moment when you just know that 10,000 people have all gone off and taken a piss at the same time. Just like there's a moment when you know that you've just nodded out in the company of rock stars, some of whom have also nodded out. I count to 10 in my head, then get to my feet because it would definitely be too slutty or wannabe groupy to ask if I can crash here. Hey you, don't crash here, can't you see it's not a party, it's not a party. Hey you, don't crash here, can't you see it's not a party, it's not a party. Next up, I've got a new job at New York's finest literary agency, but calling it a job doesn't make it right. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. <laughs>